Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Up next, a family's life is upended in an instant. We were all in shock. Everything just changed, just in a blink of an eye. The dead woman is an unlikely victim. Investigators didn't have a lot to work with at the time. The police do what police always do. They start kind of inwards and then work their way out. And that ultimately leads them to a man who lived outside the law for years. Everybody has some kind of a secret, and there's a lot of predators out there that have this secret that nobody is aware of. Snohomish County, Washington was, and in many spots still is, a place of small-town fruit stands, children riding bikes in cul-de-sacs, and the simple pleasures of a country summer. Snohomish County in 1972 was significantly different than it is today. Back then, it was a very rural area with pastures and forest land. The Loomis family called it home and loved the area. It was open, lots of fields to play. Everybody seemed to know each other. It was, it was very nice. You wouldn't even recognize the pictures from 72 to now. Jana, who was 12 in 1972, shared a house with her parents, her 20-year-old sister Jody, and Jody's soon-to-be husband, Jim. Jody was about to start a job as a nurse, but her passion was horses. Jody was involved with the horses and showing the horses, and she was an athletic club princess. On an August afternoon, Jody went off to ride her horse, which was housed in a stable about six miles from her home. Normally, her mother drove her over. But this time, for the first time, Jody insisted on using her 10-speed bicycle. A few hours later, as the sun started to set, there was no sign of her. The one rule in our house was to be back before dark. And so we knew something was wrong. As her family tried to track her down, a couple driving in nearby woods ran into what seemed a minor problem. There was a log that was blocking the road. When they got out to move the log, what they found was a young woman who was wearing her underwear and her boots. She was gasping for breath, and it was apparent she had blood all around her. The young woman had a bullet hole over her right ear. The couple rushed her to a nearby hospital where she later died. I just kind of remember through the night sensing, uh uh-oh, you know, they're looking for Jody. something is wrong. And time was going by, and then finally some officers came to the door. Jody's mother and father had to live every parent's worst nightmare. 
they were called on to identify their child's body. Later, Jody's sister was told what happened. I don't remember much after that. It's like everything went black. This was kind of shocking to people. This was not a individual who led a high-risk lifestyle. This could have been anyone's daughter. And the community was quite a bit shocked by the whole thing. Jody's autopsy showed she'd been raped and shot at close range. The medical examiner described this as sort of an execution-style wound, and that's based upon the fact that there were no defensive wounds on Jody's body. Police questioned Walter Morris, the man who drove Jody to the hospital. He happened to be in the area with a young woman named Kathy. He told police she was his children's nanny. Kathy and Walter were going to go out to this wooded area where she was located and do some target shooting. Walter was in his 30s. Kathy was 18. And police soon discovered she wasn't what he said she was. Walter was involved with Kathy, and Kathy was not his wife. Uh, he, He was having an affair. But even skeptical police had to admit that if Walter was trying to keep this affair secret, he'd likely not draw attention to himself by driving the victim to the hospital. He and all the other immediate possible suspects, including Jody's fiance, were tentatively ruled out. They ran out of viable suspects or even people of interest relatively early in the process. Frustrated detectives faced the worst kind of case, a possible random murder with no previous connection between the killer and his victim. Jody Loomis was killed about three miles from her house, about halfway to her destination, the stable where she kept her horse. The police found blood on the ground. When they searched further, they found Jody's bicycle. It was only 100 yards into the woods. One working theory was that Jody's killer might have gotten her to stop her bike by making it appear he needed help. People who knew her said this ruse would work. She was just that type of personality that if something's hurt, you help. Investigators theorized her killer used the gun to force her into the woods where he raped her. She was later found with boots on, but no pants. That indicated to the police that she was getting dressed as quickly as she could because once the boots would have been on, it would have been difficult for her to get her blue jeans over those boots. So she could and would have gotten on her feet and run as quickly as she could after getting those boots tied, but she was shot before that happened. The murder weapon was a small caliber pistol. Two bullet fragments recovered at Jody's autopsy underwent a ballistics examination. When a bullet flies through the chamber of a gun, it will leave small impressions called lands and grooves, on the bullet itself. Those lands and grooves are specific to a manufacturer. They can also be specific to a type of gun. It had six lands and grooves with a right twist, but it didn't have good enough markings to be able to compare it to the rifling in a gun. The bullet fragments had sustained so much damage 
analysts could only speculate about the murder weapon, but thought it was probably a 22 caliber, and this led to a possible break in the case. It centered around a local biker gang called the Reaper's Roadmen. There was an informant who had notified the police that a member of a local motorcycle gang had been bragging about having raped and murdered a young woman. Police wanted to get more information from this informant, but that was not to be. The informant died in a motor vehicle accident shortly after giving the information to the police. So all they had was this kind of unsubstantiated claim. Part of that information from the now dead tipster was that the biker used a 22 caliber. Detectives tracked him down. He actually had a 22 caliber pistol on him. So investigators, if they have both the bullet as well as the gun, are able to match those up under a microscope and be able to tell conclusively whether or not a bullet could have been fired from a specific weapon. But ballistic analysts determined there was no connection between the biker's pistol and the fatal bullet. Investigators were able to determine that the bullet that was found on Jody Loomis could not have been fired by the gun that was compared to by the biker gang. With the Loomis family deep in grief and a community desperate for an arrest, investigators had to face the uncomfortable prospect they might never find Jody's killer. Years passed. It can be extremely frustrating for investigators to know that a crime has happened, to know that the evidence could be there, to know that they could have the answers that they are seeking, but not be able to do anything with that, and for it to just sit there without any answers. Investigators went to unusual lengths to keep the case alive. They commissioned a unique deck of cards. We had cold case playing cards that we put out featuring 52 unsolved cold cases in Snohomish County. And Jody Loomis was featured on one of those cards. The cold case card decks were distributed in area prisons in the hope memories would be jogged. Jody Loomis was the ten of hearts. Her case ultimately became the oldest cold case in the deck. There was precious little evidence at the scene of Jody Loomis's murder. But at her autopsy, doctors retrieved a potentially vital clue. A rape kit produced a semen sample. These days, that could be enough to solve a case. Not so at the time of Jody's murder. Back in 1972, uh, forensic sciences, particularly as far as bodily fluids go, was pretty primitive. There was no DNA science uh, to speak of. But the intervening years had seen huge advances in DNA, which was good news for investigators on this and other cases. The evidence that was collected from the homicide of Jody Loomis sat at the sheriff's office in a secure evidence vault, and it waited for forensics to catch up to the crime itself so that we would be able to figure out who it was that did this. In 2008, 36 years after the murder, Jody's case was reopened. Investigators went back to Jody's evidence file and were shocked by what they found or didn't find. The vaginal swabs and the slides from those swabs, we were never able to track them 
after they were examined by the pathologist on the 25th of August of 1972. We don't know what happened to them. This was a devastating setback, made even worse by the simple passage of so much time. We don't know where the various witnesses are. Are they even still alive? A large number of the people that could tell us when Jody left her home and what she was going to do, they were dead. They weren't available to us. And it became very apparent that we needed to kind of get this thing going or we were going to lose even more witnesses. But some evidence in the case remained, and investigators had all of it re-examined. Among the items still in storage were the boots Jody wore on the day she was killed. Forensic analysts searched for any bodily fluids. For semen, we actually can't see most semen stains. They're typically invisible to the naked eye. And we have a couple of different ways to screen evidence for that. We turn to a technique called alternative light source, or ALS. Under certain lighting conditions and with proper filtration, many bodily fluids will glow or fluoresce. Every inch of the boots was examined. Perhaps the killer's blood or his semen might be present. Another analyst saw something not illuminated by the light source that might be a bodily fluid. The analyst looking at it noticed a stain that appeared out of place on the boot, decided to swab it and test that with a presumptive test for semen and found he got a positive result on that. A partial DNA profile was generated. This took a case frozen in time since 1972 and catapulted it into the 21st century. Oh, it was a very big deal. We never thought we would ever find semen on a boot, but we were looking at everything to see if we could find something of value that would link a perpetrator to this crime. The new DNA profile was entered into CODIS, the FBI's national DNA database. There were no matches. It was tested against any male who had even a remote connection to the case. Again, no matches. Investigators were baffled. They had the killer's partial genetic profile, but had no idea who it belonged to. It's certainly frustrating for the family to know that they have this profile there and it belongs to somebody, but they're not able to conclusively say who it is. Everyone involved with the case was crestfallen. After more than 30 years, after overcoming all variety of setbacks, it still appeared as if Jody Loomis's murder would remain unsolved. That is, until a new way to use DNA became available. It's a great tool, and I can't believe that there aren't multiple agencies across the country that aren't doing exactly the same thing. In 2006, millions of regular consumers using sites like Ancestry.com and 23andMe started using DNA to explore their family histories. This resulted in huge and ever-growing DNA databases. These people that put their DNA in there put it in there voluntarily, and now with the consent that law enforcement can use it, it's beneficial to the entire public for anybody to upload their DNA to GEDmatch. GEDmatch is the public DNA database 
containing the genetic material of over a million consumers. Analysts investigating Jody Loomis's cold case put the DNA recovered from her boots into the system. It's like playing the lottery. You don't know if you're going to get a match to a brother or a first cousin or a fourth cousin. With this information, genealogists searched through all variety of publicly available information looking for any familial connection to the DNA from Jody's boot. Genealogists are some of the best detectives in this country. In this case, the genealogist was then able to use that information to come forward and basically ended up at a family from the Edmonds, Washington area, less than 10 miles from where uh, Jody Loomis had actually been killed. The DNA profile that came from the semen stain was likely a son of Jaquita and Albert Miller. And so the police started doing some research upon that family and found that there were six boys in the family. And one of those six boys had a violent past, including an alleged sexual assault when he was in his mid-30s. His name was Terrence Miller, a married father of three. He was 30 years old at the time of Jody's murder. In 1976, Mr. Miller had been contacted by law enforcement for a rape and an incest charge. He had entered what was called then a pre-prosecution diversion, where he took some classes, went through some counseling, and that way was able to avoid being prosecuted criminally for the sex act that had occurred. But he was later found to be in possession of a 22 caliber handgun, and he did have a connection to the site of the murder. He was working construction, and he was living in the area, and actually talked about the fact that he frequently traveled the area where it was that Jody Loomis was found. Without identifying themselves, investigators visited a ceramic shop Miller ran with his wife and found something intriguing. A newspaper article about a local case solved with DNA. It appeared to detectives that Terrence Miller was certainly interested in and sort of keeping track of the various cases that were solved with the advancement in DNA technology. The pieces were falling into place, but one was missing. Detectives needed a fresh DNA sample to conclusively tie Miller to Jody's murder. They followed him up to a local casino. He ended up drinking some coffee and finishing that and then dumping the cup into a trash receptacle. The resulting DNA test exposed Miller as Jody's killer. In 2019, he was arrested to make absolutely sure they had their man. Analysts took Miller's DNA and tested it against the DNA profile found on the boot. If I took a random person at large from the U.S. population, that would be a 1 in 980 million chance that they would have the same profile that would match that semen profile. Miller maintained his innocence and insisted on a trial. However, while in custody, Miller had a phone conversation with his wife. It was recorded as part of standard procedure. Terry told his wife that it was a strong case against him, that it was a DNA case, and that he was going to be going to prison. And he apologized to her. Then, 
As the jury deliberated, there was a shocking development. I was in Craig Matheson's office when the detective walked in and let us know that Terrence Miller had just taken his own life. Despite Miller's suicide, deliberations proceeded and he was found guilty of Jody Loomis's murder. Her family doesn't focus on her killer. Instead, they remember Jody. She had a lot to live for. And I, I want that to be remembered. And that her case, if there's anything that can help other cases, she would want that. To this day, no one can say for certain how Miller got Jody into the woods. Investigators say the gun was decisive and she couldn't get away. Miller sexually assaulted her. It looks as if Jody waited for her chance to make a run for it and got her boots on as fast as she could. But Miller, knowing he could be identified, shot her and then fled the scene. What he could not have known in 1972 was that a tiny speck of genetic material on Jody's boot would expose him as her killer almost 50 years later. To be able to go that far back into history and to bring the witnesses and the evidence in front of a jury in 2020 and have them be able to come to a proper verdict, that was, that's kind of cool. Science is cool. It's good that the boots did help and the gratefulness to the detectives, the prosecutors, all of the scientists, everybody involved in this. Wow. Thank you, science. 